Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Soccer, Foot, and Football. Today we're going to start off with a quote. Sport is war minus the shooting. Sport is war minus the shooting. That's kind of going to be the theme for today's podcast. It's actually a quote by George Orwell. Um, That's not his real name, actually. His real name is Eric Arthur Blair, but his pen name is George Orwell. Um, He's a famous English novelist, uh, journalist as well, um, and was outspoken about totalitarianism and um, was a supporter of democratic socialism and uh, made some interesting commentary about sport in his time as well, including this this quote right here. Sport is war minus the shooting. So you're going to see that theme play out throughout today's episode um, because we're kind of shifting gears. So the previous case studies have all demonstrated how sporting events such as the World Cup and the Olympics can put a spotlight on human rights violations and general political issues that are occurring in the host country. So, for example, when we looked at China, um, we saw that the Olympics kind of shed light on the issue with Tibet. Um, when we looked at Qatar, we saw how that shed light on the uh, human rights violations in terms of um, migrant workers and what was going on there. However, the Olympics and the World Cup can also have kind of a reverse effect, essentially. And what I mean by that is that they can be used by the host of the Olympics or World Cup in an effort to spread propaganda, to project strength, and essentially improve their global image. So, for example, in the very games that shed light on the Chinese-Tibet conflict, those games were also used to showcase Chinese technological technological, excuse me, advancements and kind of how they were progressing as a society. Um, they had, you know, plenty of construction, the policies and the initiatives that were undertaken were really about Beijing's appearance. They wanted to demonstrate it as a nice livable city because at the time it did not have a, a good reputation. And so they wanted to kind of build a new narrative around it. However, China is not the first government to use this as a tool, and it certainly won't be the last. One of the most prominent examples of how governments use sporting events are the fascist regimes of World War II, and that's both in Italy and Germany. So first, if we think about the very first World Cup, so 1930, Mussolini actually attempted to host that World Cup in Italy. But when the tournament was awarded to Uruguay, Italy actually withdrew. So the very first World Cup was already political because Mussolini wanted to host it to demonstrate Italian strength and increase nationalism. And when Italy didn't wasn't awarded the rights, they dropped out of the tournament. Um, but four years later, Mussolini got his wish and the World Cup was hosted by Italy in 1934. And it really became ideal for for Mussolini and kind of his standing um you know it was a great projection of strength for the allies to take him as seriously as um Hitler and also for Hitler to take Mussolini seriously I mean hosting such a big event such as you know the second world cup ever is definitely important and it was a 
true show of strength. And so, not only was he doing it kind of for external purposes, but he also wanted to increase national pride by actually winning the World Cup. I mean, that's uh, a lot of Mussolini's narrative was through, you know, Italian pride and, and nationalism. And so, you know, he was sending his, his players to war, essentially. But kind of unlike in war, there's a referee in soccer, which theoretically would make things more uh, difficult. But Mussolini made sure that that referee was, you know, playing for Italy, essentially. Uh, Mussolini himself had dinner with, um, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, but Ivan Eklund, the Swedish referee that was scheduled for Italy's semifinal match. And he, he had dinner with the referee the night before the game, just personally, one-on-one. Then, if you look at that semifinal, you see some definitely questionable decisions that helped Italy qualify for the final. And without surprise, the same ref, Eklund, was asked to referee the final. And before the final, um, or at, at the final before kickoff, I should say, that referee was invited into the fascist VIP box before the game in the stadium. Um, so needless to say, Italy won the war of 1934, so to speak. They won the World Cup uh, in their own country and showing great strength and really increasing their pride. But they weren't done there. They wanted to repeat in 1938 a World Cup that was hosted in France. And I think they played France around the quarters, I think it must have been. And instead of using their traditional blue kits... The Italian, you know, troops, so to speak, walked out in all black, which is the color of the fascist party. So really making a political statement already going into France, who was hosting the World Cup, waiting until they played France to bring out their all black kits um, and essentially, you know, show pride in their fascist party by wearing them. And they made it all the way to the final, at which point... Mussolini telegrammed his troops. He sent a telegram to his players in Italy. All it said was, win or die. I mean, if that doesn't show you the importance that Mussolini placed on the tournaments themselves and, you know, hosting and winning, I don't know what will. He telegrammed his players, his troops, win or die. And it's different, you know, when your coach tells you, you know, go out there, play like it's your last game and give it your all and or even says win or die. But when you're the leader of your country telegrams you win or die, it's a little bit different. And I really think it shows the extent of which um, Mussolini really placed importance on this event. And so the soldiers, you know, they obeyed. They obeyed their orders and won the World Cup yet again. And then national pride was through the roof in Italy, and Italy projected its strength through sport before the war even began. Meanwhile, in Germany, um, right in between those two World Cups, well, Hitler and Nazi Germany were trying to do similar things through the Olympics. The 1936 games were in Berlin, of course, and they were the first televised games. So they really helped paint an image of a strong Germany, while also essentially normalizing their regime. 
It was being broadcasted, like I said, for the first time. And people from all over the world were seeing these, you know, not so bad Germans because they had put in place policies to show a cleaner image of Germany than what Germany really was. They had removed signs barring Jews from public places. They had relaxed their anti-Semitic policies and really tried to show this false image of a peaceful, tolerant Germany. You know, they essentially camouflaged anti-Semitic and expansionist agendas that they had. They wouldn't show those to the camera. In fact, as a part of their propaganda, they actually released a two-part film called Olympia, which was described by critics, such as The Times, as visually ravishing. So, no focus on Germany, on or Nazi Germany, I should say, and their policies, what Hitler was doing, just visually ravishing and while there were some calls to boycott the games including actually really interesting um potential setting up of counter olympics so to speak in barcelona where people who wanted to protest the games in berlin would have their own games in barcelona so that they could still participate in a way and compete just not in germany and those calls to boycott though ultimately failed I mean, 49 nations went to the games and by doing so effectively legitimized Hitler's regime. Um, Germany was creating relations and participating in global society by hosting these games. And people just didn't realize or didn't want to realize what was really going on. I mean, the New York Times reported that the Germans were, quote, back in the fold of nations and that they were, quote, more human again, end quote. I mean, that's astonishing. In 1936, for the New York Times to say that the Germans are, quote, more human again, and that they're, quote, back in the fold of nations, that really demonstrates how effective the Olympics were. I mean, they bought Hitler and Nazi Germany a lot of time. Um, Hitler had won this battle before other nations even realized that World War II had started, essentially. Because he essentially pushed them back um, by showing this um, clean image of Germany through the Olympic Games. And uh, like Mussolini, he was also using the games internally, not just externally. Uh, It... Specifically, he you know promoted the myth of the Aryan racial superiority and physical prowess. So, non-Aryans were excluded from German sport facilities and associations. Um, specifically, the Jews and the Roma were excluded. Um, and even some of the world's best athletes, uh, such as you know just to name a few, the light heavyweight champion. Uh, Erich Sealing at the time, Germany's or one of Germany's best boxers, just excluded. Germany's top ranked tennis player, Daniel Prenn, excluded. And more. They just excluded athletes left and right um, that didn't fit the traditional Aryan, and especially if they were Jews or Roman. There's actually one single Jewish athlete that competed for Germany. In 1936, 
Helen Meyer. And when she got her medal, um, I think she placed third. I could be wrong on that. But anyway, when she got her medal, she actually performed a Nazi salute. Just like every other German medalist. If you were on the podium and were German, you performed a Nazi salute. Every single one of them, without exception. And not only that, but Germany won the most medals that year at the Olympics. They beat out the U.S., they beat out all other 49, I think I said it was, 49 nations that were there. They got the most medals. Essentially, you know, another win in the battle, so to speak. Um, So those are kind of how the two prominent um, fascist regimes really used the World Cup on one end for Italy and the Olympics on the other through Germany. But it's important to note that, you know, this isn't solely a fascist thing to do. Um, And it happens all the time. Even recent Olympics and World Cups such as Sochi 2014 or even Russia 2018 were used for arguably similar purposes. Uh, Leading up to the 2014 games in Sochi, um, Vladimir Putin said the Olympics, quote, are intended to depoliticize the most pressing international issues and open additional ways to build bridges, end quote. So that's something that we've talked about in the past, how, you know, sport does help make bridges. But did he really mean it? Because he outspent the Beijing Olympics by nearly $10 billion. So... I would say that's trying to show definitely strength on behalf of Russia. And there was also the fact that the Russian spy agency essentially helped its athletes utilize performance-enhancing drugs to win medals. So, again, trying to project strength both internally by, you know, winning medals, increasing national pride, and externally by showing how competent your athletes are and just spending billions and billions and billions of dollars to improve your facilities, to portray a the best image of your country you possibly can. And that policy is not new in in Russia either. Um, I mean, I found a quote that was from Rus or from USSR, I guess at that time, Sports Committee. And in 1949, its goal was to quote raise the level of skill, and on that basis help Soviet athletes win world supremacy in major sports. I mean, some of the words there are key, like world supremacy in sports. Like that is a high, high bar and an interesting phrase to pick, supremacy. I mean, not just, you know, high performance, not just winning world supremacy. And that again feeds back into... Sport is really war without shooting. Like, world supremacy. That's, in some cases, what war is about. And it's clearly what the USSR Sports Committee thought sport was about. And um, I do want to note that I, I did pick on some traditional kind of cases that you would imagine. China, Russia, fascist regimes. But this is... Really, everyone. 
hosting such games gives countries the chance to really project strength by spending and spending and spending money, by having the best facilities, by showing off your technology, um, just by increasing national pride, by having such an event, by winning medals and so on and so forth, everything we talked about, it can really be huge. Um, that's both for hosting and winning, I would say. Uh, I know from personal experience that general happiness in France went up after France won the World Cup for a little bit. And it's, it's a, there are studies that show little spikes of just general well-being after such big events happen and your nation does well at them. And I think that's both for hosting and for doing well. So that pretty much covers everything uh, I wanted to say about you know hosting the games or the World Cup and the impact it can really have. And that impact is, is huge um, because sport is a war minus the shooting. So that's it from today, or for today, I should say. Uh, I hope you have an excellent rest of your day. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, as always, thank you for listening. Um, go check us out on Instagram and on Twitter and all that good stuff. And that's it for me. Thank you very much.